Good morning, everyone. Yes, Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked them, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. It's wonderful to be with you and open up this really tricky and pointy part of God's Word today, and I do hope and pray that you would be encouraged, uh, maybe a bit challenged and convicted too, uh, as we get to know the God of grace and kindness, even in a passage like this. We're in the book of Acts, and we have been jumping in and out the last few months, and so far, Acts, the book of Acts, has been telling uh, the wonderful story of God, uh, of Jesus, sorry, building his church and how nothing can stop Jesus doing that. 
Just consider the first seven chapters we've been plotting through. Uh, firstly, we've seen uh, in Acts chapter 4, jail and threats against those who love Jesus. Can that stop you? Threatening and, and putting you in jail for a night? Well, no. That had actually no effect on the gospel. What if they up the ante and physically beat them this time and say, you can't talk about Jesus anymore and we'll, we'll beat you up for it? Well, that happened and no, it didn't stop the gospel going out, actually. Nothing can stop the mission of the risen King Jesus. Okay, well, what about uh, in chapter 6, which we'll look at next week, community needs? What if a growing community, complex community, logistical challenges, will that just distract from the gospel going out in Acts chapter 6? Well, no, actually. They set up some new systems and structures, and on and on it goes. Then what about Acts 7? And we see the death of Stephen, the church's first martyr. What if we kill someone who loves Jesus? That, that will surely stop the gospel going out, won't it? And the answer is no, actually, because from Acts 8 onwards, the gospel spreads even quicker once Stephen is killed. Then we come to today's passage, nestled in the middle, Acts 4, 32 to 5, 11. What if the challenge to the gospel comes from within the community of believers as someone tries to now fake the grace and the generosity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus? What if there's a counterfeit? Can you fake gospel heart change, the unity of believers, their generosity? Will anyone find out about it? What effect will it have on the church of our holy God? That's what we're going to explore today. And while movies about deception are thrilling, like Catch Me If You Can, or The Truman Show from the 90s, or even Minority Report, TV shows like Suits are built on this idea of deception and lies, and they're thrilling. It's actually not very fun in real life, is it, to go through that? Betrayal, hurt, you feel sick in your stomach, you feel like you've been taken advantage of, you want to hide in your bed and not get up. Every year, people try and deceive one another in the red shield appeal by the Salvation Army knocking on people's doors. This year alone, we've lost, Australians have lost the most to online deception ever. Fake investment scams cost us 70.5 million, and dating and romance scams cost us 23.2 million dollars. And that figure's higher since I found these stats. In 2019, I was scammed by a fake eBay purchase. On a smaller scale, though, maybe you know this, you go to work on Monday and, and you're just a little bit tempted to exaggerate what happened over the weekend to make your family life and, and what you did just a little bit more exciting to the truth. Or when you're getting to know someone, maybe your first date or trying to impress the parents or grandparents and, and your job title just sounds a bit nicer than what it normally is. Or you studied somewhere that's a little bit nicer or you just exaggerated that. Or your hobbies are a bit more important than what they are and a bit more complex and just to get that reputation bump. And even in the church as a pastor, you're never immune to this. You go to any pastor's event and there's always this temptation at some point someone will inadvertently say, so how many people go to your church? And then there's this temptation, well, do you want the total number ever or just last Sunday that was, you know, the really bad week, or just the average for the month or the week, or there's a temptation to kind of fake it, isn't it? Can you relate to that? Our verses today remind us that in God's church particularly, lies, deception, desire for a reputation, 
they can't stop the mission of the risen King Jesus. Because God is far more concerned with his people being holy and not merely looking holy. Because of that, God is going to act decisively, in this instance, for everyone in the church to take notice of. A warning. That's the shocking part. But they're also a great encouragement too. You see, because Jesus has been generous to us, we can now be truly generous and united feeling no pressure to live and die by my ego, my reputation, what I have, because the good news of Jesus is you don't have to fake it anymore. So today, as we kick this around, why not check your motives against these verses, come and find with me the hope of an honest heart, a safe reputation, generous hands, just like Jesus has for you. So, Two ideas, people over possessions, possessions over people, that's where we're going to go. You can follow along on your outline. So first thought is, is comes from the first um, few verses in Acts 4, people over possessions. Because of Jesus, he's given his people one heart and mind that value people over possessions. Verse uh, 32, all the believers, literally faithful ones, all the faithful ones were one in heart and mind. And Luke, the author of this, of the book of Acts, tells us what it looks like in this moment. What does it look like in this instance to be of one heart and mind? Well, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. No one's saying, mine, like the seagulls in Nemo. They're united to people, not their things. No longer thinking, what can I get? But how can I share what I already have? Now, this thinking, it, it can only come from the gospel of Jesus at work within them. Because the reality is you'll never be able to value people over things or reputation or wealth unless your heart has been reclaimed by God's grace. Why? Because Jesus has the ability to reseat our priorities and us as a people. We shift things in our life all the time, but only he can reseat things in us. Because that's the power of God's transforming grace. You see, God's grace is his rescue of you, claiming you as his own, and that changes our relationship to things and stuff. Treasures that we have are now little mercies, pointing us to knowing God, the true giver of good and source of life, the true treasure. And the way they cared for, the way they showed this, was that they didn't claim anything as their own. No one claimed it has the idea of speaking and chatting about. Here was a group of people in which no one was chatting about this or that and how it was theirs. It was a different conversation over coffee on Monday morning. It wasn't about comparing the, the new car, the new technology, the house, the item, the pet, the job they're going to get next year, the holidays they're going to not have. It's, they weren't doing that. Moreover, we learned that what they were doing was selfless, voluntary, and sacrificial. It wasn't imposed on them. Peter wasn't saying, you shall give every field you own. You shall sell your homes. That's not what happened. Not only did they share what they had, but they sold capital items too, didn't they? Houses and land to be more generous. Verse 34 says, from time to time, they did that. From time to time. What does that mean? It wasn't every day. It wasn't an expectation of those in the church either. 
from time to time, it's a generous culture. It's a culture that's always on the lookout to be more generous. Every transaction, every business deal, every time they thought about financial decisions, they asked the question, how can I be generous to the people of God and the mission of God? What are the needs? Can I help? What does it look like to help? How can I help? And you can see the result, can't you? There were no needy persons among them. Their material needs were being met. I mean, they didn't have Centrelink and the government supports in their day, so it was up to the believers to care for one another, and they did. But all this is a result of God's grace. If you go back to verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work within them all. So Peter, John, that. They're talking about Jesus over and over again, the resurrection hope, God's grace is then working in the believers, loosening their grip on the things and stuff, reprioritizing their investment strategies so they can care for others. You see, grace saves and grace changes, doesn't it? And after all, what you do with your money and possessions says very loudly what sort of community you are, doesn't it? And it's quite clear that this Jesus community thinks and acts differently about things and stuff. And then we meet someone in verse 36 and 7 who is a concrete example of generosity. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he sold a field and brought the money and put it to the apostles' feet. Tribe of Levi, born born in Cyprus, he was a wealthy landowner. But his reputation wasn't for his business savviness, it was for being encouraging. So encouraging that he got a nickname, Barnabas. It means son of encouragement. And you see Barnabas popping up in the rest of Acts and the New Testament over and over again. And one way that Barnabas was encouraging was selling a field, probably land on Cyprus. A response to God's grace people over possessions. It's beautiful to see. These verses are wonderful. I want to be in a community like that. I'm sure you do as well. But church generosity, God's grace at work powerfully amongst the believers, genuine preaching of the gospel does not mean sin is eradicated. Because some people find it more attractive to appear to be holy than actually to be holy. Grace Sorry, great unity and grace, but great greed as well. Some people are only attracted to a work of God, not because they see a need for Jesus, they just want to get what they want. Possessions over people is the sad, shocking story of Acts 5, 1 to 11. So a couple named Ananias and Sapphira also sold land, chapter 5, verse 1. But something smells off. It's the total opposite to Barnabas, isn't it? With his wife's foreknowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet in verse 2. He brings it to Peter, and and Peter knows what's going on. How we know, we're not sure. But in verse 3 and 4, he says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. 
I mean, that's a pretty strong few words to say, isn't it? I mean, Satan has filled your heart? I mean, maybe, maybe just hyperbole. Maybe he's just trying to really show you how what's gone is, is bad. But it's shocking. And as I thought through it this week, it made me think back to someone else had a similar moment a few years earlier, and his name was Judas. Someone else in the community who was also a fake. And I think Peter, who said this, knew about Judas, but he also heard Jesus say in John 8, 44, these words about Satan. Jesus says there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. That's what Satan loves to do. Deceive, to be fake, to lie, consistent with who he is, of course. That's his character and nature. His native tongue, his native language. Which is the exact opposite of God. And that's why Peter can say, Satan has filled Ananias' heart. He's not acting in the truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly as well, for both Judas and Ananias, money was a trigger to deceive. Judas betrayed Jesus when he watched someone pour out a $50,000 bottle of perfume over Jesus' feet. And Judas couldn't fathom the love, the sacrifice, the different values that this woman had at that moment when she literally poured it on Jesus' feet and said, I love you more than all of this. So then for 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed Jesus. And so as big-hearted Barney is being generous and selling a field and giving the money, Anais sees this as a way to line his pockets and gain a good reputation too. But do you see how nonsensical this trickery is? I mean, Peter says, I mean, wasn't it yours? Like, why? You could have easily just said, I sold the field for 100 grand, I'll give you $2. Like, no one, it's fine. (laughs) You do whatever you want with it, before and after it's sold. You didn't have to lie. I choose to give this part, fine. Because this is generosity, not law. There's no set amount. Just a heart that beats with love and the grace of Jesus. God is interested in a cheerful giver. The problem is that Ananias gives the impression before God and other, other believers that this is it. You've not just lied to human beings, but God. Greed, calculated deceit, He sought to mislead on purpose. I mean, he wanted a reputation of being generous, and actually he got one because we're talking about him today, just not for what he thought it would be, right? Hypocrisy, lying. But again, frame this in where we're going in Acts. What can stop the mission of the risen King Jesus? Someone's been ousted as a fake in the church. What is going to happen? What will God do? Will he tolerate sin? Will he just allow it to go on? And be nice. Ignore it. Sweep it under the rug. The issue is he's fabricating holiness and it won't work. You can't pretend to be holy before a holy God. His holiness will literally eat you up alive. And then comes the part that's a bit shocking and some of you stood upright in your chair as you heard it. When Ananias heard what Peter said, he fell down and died. And a few hours later, the same thing happened to his wife. And fear seized the whole church and everyone who heard about it. It's a shocking moment. I'm not going to try and make that any less worse than what it is. It is absolutely shocking. It confronts God's people with how serious sin is. Notice two things particularly. 
Peter never curses Ananias or Sapphira in this instance. He confronts them. God moves on the consequence. God is the one to act, not Peter. Peter says, you're disingenuous. God does the rest. Secondly, this idea of fear overcoming the church is really, really important. The church, at this point in its life, and what God is doing, so they've come out of Judaism. In Acts chapter 1 and 2, we read a few times, they just kick around in the temple. And slowly, as the story is progressing, they're becoming more and more separate. God's church, like the temple in the Old Testament, is to be holy like God is holy. And this gradual separation from Judaism and reliance on the temple system is now coming to play. They're caring for one another. They're preaching the word of God faithfully. They don't need the temple anymore. These faithful ones are now the true gathered people of God. They're living temples. God's Spirit dwells in them. Little temples of the Holy Spirit sent into all creation to connect people to God. But just as coming to the temple in an unholy way had disastrous consequences in the Old Testament, sin in God's community will not be tolerated. You see, this community is not just living out new life in the Spirit through generosity and united with one mind, but they're actually the temple of God too. God is holy, His people need to be holy. Peter, later in his letter in the beginning, says, you should be holy as God is holy. Maybe thinking of Ananias as he wrote, wrote that. Because it's fearful to approach God wrongly. The fear, the warning is clear. You never should confuse facts about God with knowing God. Either Jesus owns your heart or you're exalting yourself to destruction like Ananias. Moreover, this is actually as well a one of a kind moment. Don't think God is consistently acting this way in the rest of the New Testament. It's not the typical way God works, right? This is like a warning light for every other believer to hear, to read, to have great fear come over us because God is holy. But there's great comfort. Massive comfort. How? God does take sin in his community seriously more serious than we do. He sees it before we do. He knows the horrible depths, how that it penetrates before any of us do and may may ever know. This is the very opposite of what his community is to be about. To put it bluntly, it is satanic to have this living in God's community. It grieves God for people to act this way, to pretend to be fake. If you have been sinned against through deception or greed, or lust, or power, or being taken advantage of in God's church, it is horrible. God hates that. It grieves Him. And His justice will be enacted. Probably not in the same way as you would like with Ananias and Sapphira, but it will be. Because the hope is that God's grace is bigger and more liberating than someone's evil. And we know that because Jesus understands better than anyone else the hurt and the false, the hurt that false shepherds can do to you. He was mocked and abused and misunderstood and beaten and ultimately killed by false shepherds in his church among his people. And because of that, he offers us grace and righteousness and restoration when we have been sinned against. 
In these moments, a statement I read recently rings true. Atheists do far less harm than hypocrites. Atheists do far less harm than hypocrites. How? Why? Because a hypocrite intentionally deceives, causes hurt in the one place in the world that should be the safest, most gracious bunch of people ever to live, those saved by the grace and love of Jesus. And that's the hope. Which means as we close up this thought, we need to be aware of the fake. But I don't want to dwell on out there. There's another more pressing place we have to consider this morning. And that is be aware of the fake in here, in me, in you. You see, God is far more concerned with you and me being holy and not merely looking holy. Which means the place we examine is actually our own hearts. Fake it till you make it will never work in God's community. You can't. Jesus came to expose our fakeness. How does he do that? Well, he's generous to us while we're stingy and selfish and evil to him and others. He shows us the way of truth when we'd rather ignore God and deceive. He gives us grace so we can learn to live without the pressure of performance dominating our actions and our hearts. Because he's done what none of us can do. Clean, forgive, make us holy before a holy God to live a generous, kind life. You see, each of us meet a nice and sapphire, not out there, but actually in here. That's where the battle is. That's the battleground Jesus fought on, not appearances. And we see how wonderful it is when Jesus does win, when God's grace changes your life in the first half of end of chapter 4. The unity, the generosity, the kindness. How the Spirit makes a wonderful community united in love of Jesus who are generous. Because yes, wealth can be a wonderful servant of God like Barnabas shows us, right? Wealth, when used rightly in God's economy, is selfless and voluntary and sacrificial and values people over possessions. We rule our wealth by the grace of Jesus but it can be a terrible master. And Nias and Sapphira show us that. Deception, greed, lying to God, they have no place in God's church. And God will expose your fakeness if you keep it up. After all, God is holy. His community should reflect His holiness and be holy like Him. You cannot trick God for a reputation. 1 Timothy 5, 24, The sins of some are obvious reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. Now, some of you will not drop dead tomorrow or even now because you've heard this. But you can be sure that, like Peter says, you're following the footsteps of Satan, not Jesus, with a heart filled with the opposite of the Spirit. That's the warning. But again, there's good news because you know what warnings are about, don't you? They're there because God loves us. A warning isn't judgment. If all God wanted to do was judge you, then he wouldn't first warn you. We constantly warn our children, don't we? Don't touch the stove, don't climb too high in the tree, don't run around the pool, you'll slip. We, we warn our children. We warn them when they get older, the dangers of being on the road and driving too fast. I haven't got there yet, but I'm sure many of you with older kids, the first time they go out with their license, it's a very nerve-wracking, anxious moment. We warn them about being online, 
We warn them the dangers of money and misguided sexual desires and reputation issues, and we warn them of that, motivated by love for our kids. And one of the ways we experience the kindness and love of God is in His warnings to us. The dangers of living in a fallen, sinful world. So God says, repent, flee to my restorative grace. There is an old song, and it says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for your courts above. Come now, fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing your grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Seal my heart by your grace. Do you need that today? We're prone to wonder. Maybe check your hands, check what you own. How do you feel about the things and stuff you have? God's grace loosens your grip on what you have. Check your motives. Why are you here? Are you just doing things and talking about things and pretending before God and others? And you know that. Just for what you can achieve or for some other reason. Because Ananias found the status and comfort of having more, being well thought of, as more important to him than his happiness in the love of Christ. But God's grace to us says you don't have to live in that or operate from that position. Like Barnabas, from time to time, we can, by God's grace, act with generosity as needs arise, so we can be a church, so filled with the love of Jesus, and operate out of that. And I want to be a part of that. And I want to examine my heart against the nice and Sapphira and say, oh, that hurts. Because while I'm not selling fields, I think there are moments in my life when something else becomes more important to me like what you think, than what God thinks. And as I think through this time of year that we're living in, get real specific, what would it look like to say at Christmas time, none of my possessions are my own? None of what I have or what I'll buy or my little home and my castle of, of, of food and celebration, that's not my, I'm, I'm going to be generous, just like Jesus has been generous to me. And then see what God will do with that. Why not pray that God would give you a heart of generosity and unity and that will permeate through our church? Yeah, we, we, we say loving God, loving people, making disciples. And this is what the early church did. And we want to do that. But it's not just realizing God loves me, it's realizing God loves us and living in the grace and kindness of God and showing it to one another. And so it's a, it's a pointy verse today, but praise God that it's there so that we can examine our hearts and see the generosity and kindness of our Lord Jesus. Maybe you have a coffee today, you'd like to pray for someone, or commit to praying them for the week and say, can I pray for you that God would make them more aware of his grace and more generous and less connected to the things they have? You know, I think you get that, it's a clunky sentence, but would you, would you say to someone, can I pray for you for that this week? And then commit to doing it and they'll do it to you and see what happens. I'm going to pray and then hand over to the band to lead us through our, our song. We can praise God for that. Jesus, thank you that you are the way, the truth, the life and that you loosen our grip on this world and the things of it and our reputation and our money and things and stuff 
because you are the treasure. And Father, we don't want to pretend before you. We want to be genuine and real and holy like you. So, Father, shine your restorative grace to our hearts this morning, to anything that's not right, that we would not carry on that way, but we would instead bring it to Jesus, who heals and forgives. And if we carry a burden this morning of what has been done to us through some evil and deception, maybe bring that to the cross too. And know that when Jesus died and rose, we have new life full of forgiveness and grace with you for what's been done to us too. So Lord, give us healing in our hearts and minds to love you and love one another genuinely. In your name we pray, truthful God, holy God, amen.